exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. You're listening to Friday Night Inside. I'm your host, Melissa Horst. Coming up, we've got a great show for you. Um, the governor's address will be taking place later on in the hour. We also have Lou Anna Case Simon's State of the University address. Um, we will also have an interview. Uh, Russ White will bring us uh, an interview with Steve Lacey, MSU journal, uh, journalism professor, who's going to be talking about the state and future of the newspaper business and journalism in general. Um, but coming up right now, we've got an interview with uh, Jim Forger. Uh, Jim Forger is the dean of MSU's College of Music, the School of Music has become the College of Music at MSU. Forger talks about the difference between a school and a college and details his goals for the new MSU College of Music. Um, That's going to be coming up, interviewed by Russ White here on your Friday Night Insight here on the Exposure uh, Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Happy to be visiting with Jim Forger today. And Jim, let me be one of the first to greet you as Dean Forger rather than Director Forger, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Russ. Great to be chatting with you. It indeed is an exciting time for uh, the faculty students uh, in the newly formed College of Music at MSU. That's why we're visiting with Dean Forger today. Uh, MSU's uh, acclaimed School of Music is now MSU's College of Music. And explain to us why that's sort of important and how it all came about. Well, I think... uh, Uh, Several years ago, former Provost Luana Simon, now our president, uh, raised a discussion on campus regarding possible reconfiguration of liberal arts and learning on the MSU campus. And our faculty proposed a configuration as an independent college, which more uh, accurately reflects, I think, the size and scope, the stature, the achievement of our unit compared to peers across the nation. Uh, We've had significant uh, and incremental investment in the school, which has led to the creation of distinct and dynamic programs led by superb faculty. And those individuals have been responsible for recruiting an ever-increasing student body in terms of quality, quantity, achievement, and it this distinction uh, and in, and. Uh, administrative configuration I think more readily reflects uh, our stature across uh, the United States. Talk about the mission then of the college. What are your your goals for the College of Music? Well we have several goals. Uh, Primary among them is to develop one of uh, the best possible professional schools that we can muster. Uh, This would include Uh, you can't do everything in life and we recognize that and we aim to be selective in where we seek to achieve national excellence. Uh, We have areas of performance in music therapy and uh, music education that uh, and jazz studies in the forefront and uh, among uh, we we are very proud to try to bring together excellence in performance together with the reality that performers are all music educators. We have a first rank music education program, but beyond those in that program, we seek to have a number of our students from across disciplines active in outreach and engagement in this community and beyond. 
we are instituting a new office, an associate dean for outreach and engagement, uh, an individual named Rhonda Buckley, who is one of the nonprofit leaders in Washington, D.C. currently, and she was going to lead us into a new era of uh, collaborations uh, in the greater Lansing area. Uh, she will be the executive director of the Community Music School, and we have some new exciting developments, uh, interactions with the partners in the city of Detroit. An additional portion of our mission is uh, our, the contribution that we have an opportunity to make on this campus, a large campus with 44,000 students. Uh, next year is going to be the Year of the Arts uh, at MSU, and the School of Music, together with our colleagues in the other arts, aim to make a difference. One of our responsibilities needs to be the opportunity to provide uh, music lessons, uh, performance opportunities, and classes that actively get folks uh, uh, creating music or involved in attending performances and studying and understanding music. So I think that that can make a difference in the lives of people, and we have the opportunity to do that on the MSU campus, and that's one of our challenges and one of the things that we look forward to developing. Expound on that a bit because outreach is so important to the mission of the entire university. Talk about the outreach initiatives you'll be growing here. Well, we, uh, w I think to make a difference in the lives of individuals from uh, uh, very young people with our distinctive early childhood program through uh, youngsters in public school through those uh, in in adult education, uh, one can make that difference through the arts uh, in sequential learning. And there are many arts institutions that have the ability to periodically share concerts, which is really exposing people to an art form. I think what really makes a difference is the sequential instruction, and we are planning to develop programs. We currently have programs, for instance, in Detroit with Jazz Studies, where uh, advanced students and faculty mentors uh, teach uh, 12 weeks each semester in a Saturday program uh, with inner-city youth uh, developing their reading skills, their improvisation skills, their compositional skills, uh, and uh, that, uh, to me, can make a difference in, in the lives of folks. They need to gain uh, skills and uh, concepts and uh, a whole range of of abilities which uh, is introduced gradually over time and uh, I think that we have a, a great commitment to uh, doing that through uh, through the art of music. Do most uh, students that graduate with a degree in music stock the orchestras of the world and the jazz quintets and whatnot or do they teach or what do most people do with degrees? I think that uh, there are a wide-ranging uh, uh, set of uh, opportunities out there. Uh, within music education, uh, we have a placement rate through uh, the undergraduate program and graduate programs of 100%. So there are a lot of people that are joining university faculties uh, and providing excellence in music education through the public schools. On the performance side, there are numbers of folks who uh, put in a variety of things together, from performing in orchestras to um, uh, playing chamber music uh, and also teaching. I think it's interesting to note that many of the orchestras throughout the United States, uh, particularly in urban areas, are becoming uh, the educational institution in that city. And there are a new set of skills that are required uh, for uh, folks to make a real impact. 
Uh, one can reflect on Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. They're a, f- a fine performance organization in the city of, of New York, and they travel the, the world, but they also are actively engaged in uh, in residencies and providing outreach uh, uh, and, and education. We're fortunate to have uh, three distinctive musicians on our full-time jazz faculty, Rodney Whitaker, former bass player of Lincoln Center Jazz, uh, Wes Anderson, who uh, Warm Daddy Anderson, who was Winton's Marcellus's uh, uh, lead alto for 17 years, and Derek Gardner, who played lead trumpet for Harry Connick Jr., uh, all actively involved in outreach through those national organizations, and now uh, working together uh, as members of the professors of jazz at MSU, performing together, but also providing a great deal of outreach and sequential instruction, contact with. Uh, students uh, throughout Michigan. Dean Forger, summarize for us again, if you will, then why it's important that it's a college of music now, and and what would you like people to know, to take away and know about the College of Music at MSU? I think we have a very distinctive college that blends the best in performance, the best in the practical application uh, uh, of uh, teaching and commitment to student learning, whether they be music ed majors or whether they be be uh, performance majors. Also, we have a uh, the Pioneer Music Therapy program that's that uh, works with a, a very distinctive population of, of uh, uh, individuals with a variety of challenges. I think that we have a fabulous faculty that has led programmatic uh, uh, advances, and uh, we believe that uh, our community. Uh, uh, of musicians can make a difference in this state and in the nation. That's Dean Jim Forger of MSU's College of Music, and there's a lot more information on the web at music.msu.edu. And please visit MSU Today on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Today, visiting with journalism professor Steve Lacey from MSU. Steve, great to visit with you on MSU Today. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the state of journalism and, and newspapers maybe in general to start off. We read all the time or hear all the time about the dire straits of circulation and nobody reads the paper anymore, especially the young people that you teach every day. How accurate is some of that and, and sort of what is the state of newspaper journalism these days? 
like most things, the the state is not as bad as some think, and it's better off than others think. Uh, one of the things to realize is is that at a international level, newspapers are doing quite fine, depending on what part of the world you go to. In Japan, for example, there are on average about two newspapers, daily newspapers sold per household every day, and we're somewhere down around 50 percent. Uh, part of this reflects the different natures of the countries and the press systems. The United States has uh, spread its political power out more generally than most countries, and so we tend to have very local newspapers. We really only have two national papers, uh, if you don't count the Wall Street Journal, it's financial, uh, USA Today and the New York Times, and neither one circulates at any high level across the country. In Japan, there are four national papers, each of which have about four million circulation. Uh, so a lot of it gets to the system. The other thing about the United States is no other country has as well-developed a broadcasting and cable system as we have. And so we've always had a lot more choices as how we spend our media time than have other parts of the world. And so what's happening to us may or may not happen in other parts of the world, but, but we are different than you'll find at most, most other countries around the world. So how have it, have things changed then over the years? Are people really reading papers less, or does it just seem that way? Well, part of it gets to the idea of why people use newspapers to begin with. Um, the majority of material in newspapers is not really hard breaking news or public affairs news. Uh, much of it is actually entertainment. The sports page, the lifestyle page, even human interest stories spread throughout. So there's been this assumption that newspapers are all news, and they're not. They're bundles. Now, what happened when, over the years, as various media have evolved, different sorts of functions have been taken away, and some functions can be added. Uh, television took away breaking news. Uh, back even before radio, newspapers would put out 12 editions a day. As soon as something important happened, they would change the front page and put out another edition. Well, there's no need to do that with television, and there's no need, certainly, with the Internet. And so those functions sort of got moved away. Uh, international news became uh, dominated by television because we could see things overseas, just didn't have to read about them. And so newspapers became even more locally oriented than before. Um, now we're seeing the Internet come along, and it's not clear just what's happening. Uh, but there are a lot of things happening, going on trends happening at the same time. Uh, the loss of circulation, for example, reflects at least four things, if not more. One is that choice. We have more choice than ever before as to how we spend our time. People who are not hardcore news readers have no reason to go to newspapers anymore. So all of those readers were not really hardcore. Some of them were marginal and something better has come along and so they're spending their time with those better things from their perspective. Uh, having said that, there are almost as many copies of newspapers printed per week today than there was 30 years ago. And that's because as the daily industry has become weaker, the weekly newspaper industry has become stronger. Uh, we did a study about what happens to daily newspapers that closed over a 17-year period. And what we found is that two-thirds of them actually did not disappear. They became weeklies, they merged with other dailies, they became zoned editions of dailies. So those communities were still being served, they just weren't being served with daily newspapers because the community didn't need a daily anymore. So part of it is an evolution of the industry away from the, the, the approach it had taken for 150 years. Uh, part of the problem with circulation is that 
newspapers are written at a very high level. Despite the myth that they're written at sixth grade or junior high level, they're actually written roughly at a beginning freshman level of college, which makes sense since most of the writers are college graduates now. Uh, but there's been empirical look, uh, looks at that, and, and indeed they're written at a high level. So I would suspect there's at least 20% of the country, of the people in the country who are not comfortable reading newspapers. They, they, many of them can read them, but it's not something that they look forward to, that they enjoy. It's something that they may have to do. And so really we're starting out not with 100% of the people in the country, but maybe 80% or 75% who could actually deal with a newspaper uh, and feel comfortable. Uh, part of the decline in circulation has been purposeful. A uh, perfect example you find with, say, uh, uh, the Gannett Corporation. When they bought the Des Moines Register, when they bought the uh, uh, Louisville uh, Courier-Journal, when they bought them, they were state papers. They circulated throughout Iowa and throughout Kentucky. But to save money, they cut back and they stopped doing that. And so they lost circulation, which was high-cost circulation because it was too expensive. Uh, now, when, there's, a, there's a process called clustering, where companies buy all the, the newspapers in an area. For example, uh, Gannett bought the, had, owned the Lansing State Journal, and they bought all of the weeklies in the area. Well, when you do that, uh, what typically happens is one of the newspapers will stop serving the whole areas. So I suspect that the Lansing State Journal will either incorporate those as zoned editions, or maybe not pressed to sell newspapers further away from central Lansing. When it happens with daily newspapers, when two dailies in adjoining counties, for example, merge into the same company, uh, we did a study back in the 90s and found a drop of uh, 3 to 7 percent uh, penetration. That means anywhere from 3 to 7 percent of the households in those two counties stopped taking the paper because they couldn't get their choice. The company would no longer compete with itself. So part of it has been just a cutting back to save money. So when you look at it, you have to understand that, that part of it is demand, part of it is purposeful, purposeful cutback, part of it is all, who, who knows what. Some people just have decided not to read. A final factor has been the movement towards public ownership by newspapers, which is about 40, 50 years old. When a company becomes owned publicly, and the stock is controlled outside the company, they tend to make higher profit margins and have smaller, um, percent, a smaller percentage of their revenues go to the newsroom. And we've done several studies over the years and found that there is a correlation between traditional quality of journalism, that is a lot of local coverage, uh, more space, more in-depth coverage, and circulation. So if you cut back the newsroom, you're changing the nature of the paper, and you're losing some of your readers. So there are a lot of factors that are coming into play. What newspapers can do about it? Well, first of all, they can recognize that it's not going to be a newspaper forever. It's going to be news, and it's going to be delivered in whatever way they have to to get the readers to look at it. Just as circulation is declining, a web readership of newspapers is going up. And it's actually been going up fairly quickly, according to the data I've seen. Uh, and so it's, it's not that newspapers are disappearing, they're simply transforming. And in the transforming period, it's hard to figure out just exactly what's going to come out of the other end of that process. MSU journalism professor Steve Lacey visiting with us on MSU Today on Impact Radio. Well, Steve, the lifeblood of any newspaper is advertising. I think to the tune of maybe 75% of their revenue is a stat I've heard before. Mm -hmm. How is all this affecting revenue? 
Well, and that's where the big impact is. Um, the, the, the really hard and fast rule of economics is that the more competition you get, the lower your revenue is going to be. And the Internet is providing a huge competition for newspapers, especially in the area of classified. Craigslist, anybody who can come in and set up a way of organizing classifieds is doing a better job than a newspaper where you simply have to read everything to find it. So the, the web was, is perfect for advertising because of its searching ability. Newspapers, as a matter of fact, their defensive action was to move on. That's why they moved online, to try and protect the classifieds. Uh, but they're not going to be able to protect all of that. Uh, so advertising is not going to be where it was, which means that they either need to adjust their profit requirements or they're going to end up cutting back on their, their labor, their newsrooms, which means they're going to lose more readers, etc. So it could become a very self-defeating de cycle. Uh, the big adjustment is going to have to be in profit expectations, and that adjustment will take place. In the past uh, uh, eight years, we've lost two very big newspaper chains, Thompson and Knight Ritter, and they went out of business because they could not maintain the profit margins that they expected. And that is likely to happen to other newspaper groups unless they adjust their profit margin. Uh, just, I, I really think looking ahead, it appears like we're, we're developing what you find in most parts of the world, sort of an upscale news system and a downscale. If you go to England, you've got the tabloids and the quality newspapers. But I think what we'll have here is an upscale system that's text-oriented, delivered online or in paper for a while until the transition's made. And then we're going to have more of a downscale that will be oriented more towards video and television. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence that we're already seeing that. Watch the local news and you'll see lots of car wrecks and fires and murders, but very little public affairs reporting. So if you want to know what's going on in government, in your community or the state, you're going to orient towards text online, and if you're all you're interested in are the car wrecks, you're going to be watching television. You've touched on it, Steve, but if indeed people are reading the newspaper less, where are people getting their news these days? Well, it's not clear where they were getting their news before. It's always been a problem because newspapers are a bundle of information and news. And the fact that somebody got a newspaper doesn't necessarily mean they were reading the news. They could have just been reading the sports section or the classifieds. As a matter of fact, there's, there's always been a, a correlation between advertising and buying newspapers. People have bought newspapers for ads. It's not like television where people want to take them out. Newspaper ads have value. They tell you where to get sales. They tell you the best buys. So there is, all advertising is not equal. And newspaper advertising often is sought. Now the real issue is going to be how do you transfer a, a generation or two who are used to getting everything free into one that's willing to pay because eventually people have to pay journalists want to make money now having said that there there is increasing effort to generate what are called citizen journalism sites oftentimes people who are unpaid who who are interested because of their civic interest there's just a report that came out of the JLab about that and, and there's an increasing interest as to whether or not that can fill some of the hole and we just don't know yet but there are roughly 50% of the people who vote regularly in this country. Of those, probably a third of all the people vote almost every election. Those, that's the market for newspapers. Okay. Newspapers will eventually cease to be this mass medium where you try to get everybody in the market with one product. Uh, companies can produce multiple, like Noise, which is locally here produced in order to appeal to younger people. I have no idea how successful it is. 
But that's the future, and you'll have multiple products, or you'll have multiple web pages, or people can go to web pages and go to different sections. Some of it will be serious journalism, and that's where people who are interested in government and public affairs will go. Uh, the question is, who's going to pay for it? How much will be there? Um, quote, free uh, or, or uncommercial uh, organizations like citizen journalism, NPR at a national level, uh, will try and make up some of that slack. But there's an opportunity if you're willing to get by on what most businesses would be happy with in terms of your profit margin, but you're not going to get by with 20 to 25 percent profit margins in the future. Steve, how does this impact, if it does at all, how you and your colleagues teach today's journalism students at MSU? Well, there's a, there's a big debate going on about that. Uh, part of it is, uh, you know, do we have to teach people how to use a video camera? Do we have to pe teach people how to blog, et cetera? Uh, the problem is, if you're an accredited journalism program, you have a limited number of credits that you can use. And the issue is, what do you give up? in order to put in these new skills. Traditionally, uh, journalism programs have taught uh, communication skills, writing, video. I mean, all those things are being taught now. They're just not being taught to everybody. Uh, so you have the skills. You have reporting skills. How do you find information? Increasingly, we're teaching computer-assisted reporting, for example. You have the professional side, and that is you know, what are the ethics? What are the law? What's the history of journalism? Uh, you have the idea of trying to promote critical thinking or analytical thinking, which is part of writing and all the others. And then last, you have the liberal arts and science education. If journalists are going to know anything, they have to take a wide range of courses. So the question then becomes, with those five goals, what do you decrease if you increase the other? Uh, you could always give up accreditation, but there are problems with that because accreditation keeps your class size low and if you give it up then the class sizes can increase and there's less instruction per student. So it's a tough question. My feeling is that it, just as it's always been, smaller news organizations will want journalists with a variety of skills. And they also want us to teach them because they don't like to pay for them. And that's an unfortunate condition in the industry. But the New York Times doesn't want a reporter who's a great writer and a great videographer because those people don't exist. The fact that you can write doesn't mean that you can understand things well visually. And so, you know, it becomes an issue of are you training students for their first job or are you training them for their second and third job where there will be more specialization. In economics, money has always been made in two ways. One's economy is scale, which means the more things you sell, the more profit you make per unit. And that's gone. The Internet and cable television have removed that. You're not going to have mass media as we had in the 70s. The other way of making money is division of labor. And that is you give different people different jobs and allow them to become very good at it, and then you coordinate the process, just like making a car. Well, in making news, it's at the larger institution, or the larger news organizations, you've always had photographers and editors and reporters and designers, and then someone to bring it all together. If you start expecting those walls to break down, then you're going to be creating a lot of mediocre content. A great writer will produce a mediocre picture. A great photographer might produce mediocre writing. And so at the higher levels where people were going to be asked to pay for quality, you've got to produce the quality. And so just as the, as the industry is becoming fragmented and difficult to handle, so is journalism education. 
Uh, my personal feeling is let's not teach things they can pick up over a weekend workshop. Let's teach the things that are solid, like professional values and critical thinking, certainly liberal arts and sciences because the world's becoming more complicated. Uh, and I still think that the most efficient and effective way of communicating public affairs issues, which is the real reason behind the First Amendment. It's not there so we can learn about uh, Lindsay Lohan or Anna Marie, uh, uh, Anna, Nicole Anna Nicole Smith, or, or Elvis Presley. It's there for us to get government coverage. And the most efficient and effective way of dealing with that is still text. Uh, you, you can't do a video of a city council efficiently and effectively and get across what's going on. You still write about it. So I say we still teach writing. And then we allow as much as possible within our resources for these other uh, things that, that students might need to start out. But eventually, if you're going to work your way up to the best places, you're going to be a specialist. Steve Lacey, you've touched on it throughout our conversation, but with all we've said now, look into your crystal ball, and, and what is the future for newspapers and, and maybe media in general as you see it? Well, drop the paper. Uh, the, the, the thing that news organizations need to realize is that newspapers, as they're now defined, at a local level still have the largest news-gathering operation. Despite the high demands on profit you find at newspapers, television stations have even higher. And so increasingly the, the TV newsrooms are shrinking more, and they all tend to be general assignment reporters, so they're not specialists. So if newspapers maintain an investment in their newsroom, and if they continue to have specialists in areas, once we get through this adjustment period, they can dominate the local news and information market. But that will only happen if they adjust their profit demands and if they understand this and maintain that investment throughout. There was an interview with the publisher of the New York Times that came out last week and he said, I don't care if we publish on paper or not. We're going to continue to be the New York Times. We're going to do what we do and we will distribute it whatever way works. But we're not going to change from producing great journalism. And if you want to be a journalism organization, that's what you have to do. If you want to be a sensational journalism organization, then you want to go out and get video of car wrecks that, that somebody shot on their way home. And so part of it is just deciding if you want to produce good public affairs journalism or not. And, and of course, that's a choice that all companies make. But there will always be a demand for it as long as we have a democracy. Steve, anything we important we've left out or some final thoughts you want to make? Um, well, I mean... Th the reality is that a, a, a nation gets the press system it wants and deserves. And so my real concern is that we will have people who no longer understand that they need to read to participate well in a democracy. And if that happens, then we won't have newspapers or news organizations that produce good public affairs reporting. But then the democracy's over anyway, so we'll all have to move to Canada. Steve, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. You're welcome. Enjoy it. Steve Lacey, journalism professor at Michigan State University. And for much more on the web, you can visit us at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio.
You're listening to Friday Night Insight, and that was Russ White with uh, MSU journalism professor Steve Lacey. The Michigan House approved three bills that would terminate the state's drug liability defense for pharmaceutical companies. The 11-year-old law protects pharmaceutical companies from claims of personal injury if the drug was approved by the Federal Drug Administration. The bills terminating this drug liability defense were passed in the House 70 to 39 without any amendments, though many amendments were proposed, including limiting lawyers' uh, contingency fees. Now the bills will face scrutiny in the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mike Bishop says that the one of the major problems with uh, the one of the bills is that it is retroactive. It allows people to bring forward cases from as early as 1996. Coming up later in the show, we have an address by Governor Granholm, but first we have the President Simon's State of the University address here on Friday Night Insight uh, on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Michigan State University President Luana Simon outlined the university's progress and future challenges in a talk she delivered at the university's annual awards convocation on February 8, 2007. Today is a really a traditional day to celebrate the university's founding, its values, Historically, there have been uh, the 40 or 50-minute speeches by presidents that are similar to state of the state, state of the nation addresses about what we've done and and uh, what we need to do. And I have one of those, and you can read it on the website tomorrow. Uh, because I want to just sort of spend a little bit of time here uh, talking about sort of a bit of context, give you a hint about some of those accomplishments and why I think they're important, and give you a flavor about some of the things we're working on for the future, but not to do that in the traditional format. And I really do urge you tomorrow to go to the website and, and read all the specifics. When I think about the last year or so and the economy in Michigan, what we hear nationally, the competitiveness of the United States. And two years ago, when I did the inaugural address, I talked about harsh winds blowing on us and not just the Michigan weather, but the kind of chilling, bone-chilling uh, winds that, that tore at our being, at our values, and at our economic stability. And at that time, we talked about really the role of a land-grant university and its values and how it could lead a nation, a state, the world to potentially a better tomorrow. And we might have the perfect storm sequel two years later, uh, much like all those Rocky Balboa movies where we've been through this sort of crisis yet again. If you look at the unemployment data in Michigan, the loss of the knowledge-based jobs represented by Pfizer, and just a general state of, of unease. But we also look at, and you'll see it in the accomplishment, there are lots of bright spots, and many of those bright spots have been a part of the work of Michigan State University and our partners. Team MSU, the faculty, and our partners working together to understand that the land-grant vision was really simply all about hope. It was about people being good enough for the proudest and open to the poorest and worrying about the disparities in society, even though those chilly winds of Proposal 2 or domestic partner benefits are now sort of at gale force. And it's not losing sight of those values and the ways in which we can, in small ways and in policy ways, really make a difference. It's the continuing disparity in education in Michigan and the workforce issues that we must address 
to make the state competitive. And we need to be a part of that, whether it's in urban Michigan or in rural Michigan. We also have to worry more and more about how we can get cutting-edge knowledge into the society so that, that sophisticated issues like the bioeconomy aren't simply ethanol. Because ethanol is important, but it's not our future. And that really is a part of a land-grant university, a world-grant university. We also have to, after spending all of the last couple, three weeks with the tax panel, the emergency group, I have a real bit better understanding of all the financial fundamentals of the state. And the outcome of that report was simply that no single solution will work. And I think the governor in her State of the State address did parrot some of those lang the language by saying that this is not a Democrat or Republican solution, my solution, your solution, it is our solution. And the university needs to help do that. But at the heart of that is how we regain trust. The accountability measures, the kind of dialogue that will be necessary for the state is how do we instill greater trust in one another and greater trust in a university that it can be a part of the solution and set its own interests aside for the betterment of society. That the accomplishments that are listed in the report, the statement that you'll see, and there are many, weren't simply to make us better in and of itself, but they were there because by making us better, we're going to make the state, the nation, and the world better. And then we looked at our accomplishments, not simply for look at me, but look at us and what we have done. And the stories of the faculty members, the staff members, the students we're going to recognize today are the vignettes, the stories that give life to the fact that we have, through our work, not simply advanced us in a very narrow way of the reputation index or the U.S. News and World Report, but we have, in fact, made a, made a huge difference around the world every day in many, many ways. And what has animated the people that we recognize today and many, many people around Team MSU is that that simple test of are we adding value and are we making a difference. And that really is the land grant values, the world grant values. What I know is that as we think about these inequities, I want to also think about Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, comments uh, during World War II. And she said, almost the biggest obligation we have today is to prove in times of stress we can still live up to our beliefs. And that really is our challenge today in terms of the fundamental values of quality, inclusion, and connectivity. Because the winds will cause us to look inward, find shelter, and not be able to, and use excuses like a proposal to say that our belief of inclusion isn't real anymore. It just simply requires a lot more hard work, a lot more outreach, a lot more creativity to both be within the law and promote inclusion. And so like Eleanor Roosevelt, I'll pledge to you and then Team MSU that we believe we are up to the stresses of the time and we will live up to our beliefs. If you look at the set of accomplishments that, that, are, that will be in the document tomorrow, You'll see in, in, in that document that what we've done essentially is really only a beginning. 
much like Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what we call results are really beginnings. And you'll see there some very common threads. Much of what we've done are built on partnerships, and I appreciate all of uh, some of our partners being here today. The economic development activities in the community, in the region, that are so important were built on partnerships. And that we have a stronger foundation, we're on higher and firmer ground as a result of those partnerships and the efforts that birthed new organizations, Prima Civitas and the LEAP organization. The work we're doing with Lakeshore Advantage or Right Place, Detroit Renaissance, you can go on and on in the list. They're all partnerships at their core. The work of the medical school in, in West Michigan, what we're going to be trying to do with the College of Osteopathic Medicine in, in Southeast Michigan, all built on partnerships. There's an also another important new partnership this year that I need to underscore in these uh, in these accomplishments, and that's the University Research Corridor. Everyone understands, if you read any popular press, that research universities are the key to the future. And there are three major research universities in Michigan with medical schools. Michigan State, Wayne State, and the University of Michigan. And we, through the University Research Corridor, and there was a phone call just this morning to talk about the Pfizer activities. Now, in the past, because that had happened in Ann Arbor, it would have been only the University of Michigan. But today, and if you look at Mary Sue Coleman's announcement and statements, when she made her statement, it was about the research university corridor pitching in to help. And that's really important because all of our assets need to move together as a team for the state and for the nation. And that, that partnership is really important. Economic development is suspending, as I said, a lot of our time. It doesn't mean the academic programs are unimportant. And in the, in the speech, the Britain, you're going to see a lot of those accomplishments in terms of study abroad, outreach, the undergraduate student experience. And you can see that we're really working very hard to be a model for the prototypical 21st century education. And the other big aspect that you hear in, in the nation, at, at national level, state level, is the issues of health. And you'll know that we have online programs in nursing, lots of efforts to try to improve health care around the state in addition to the work of our medical colleges. Those are all really important as part of those partnerships, as is the, the work in fundraising. But let me turn just to give you a preview because in the document is also some things we want to sort of stretch ourselves with in the future. And one of the things that we want to talk about and, and think about in that future is that Provost Wilcox and Vice President Poston have been working to have a clear articulation of boldness by design, foci, expectations, and metrics. And consistent with our pattern of communication, there's going to be a website uh, that will be launched on March 12th when you all get back from spring break that will begin to organize and to synthesize all of the activities under boldness by design. They give a sense for everybody of the metrics we're trying to use to judge our success. And again, these are metrics not simply to be better than another university, though there are elements of that, but also to be hitting on the targets necessary for us to be that prototypical 21st century university. Provost Wilcox is also going to be leading an effort to revise the mission statement because that was one of the issues that came out of the North Central Review. 
But we also want to test ourselves with some time limits. So to give you a couple of examples of these quantifiable targets, we want every graduate of Michigan State to have a significant exposure to global content as a part of their educational experience. This goes well beyond study abroad. We also recognize that a vast majority of our faculty must be engaged globally in their research and scholarship. A third of our entering class needs to participate in living learning, and there'll be announcements of some new programs, including one in engineering that we want to launch next year. And we also want to be sure that in this international experience for students, it's not simply studying abroad, it's doing research and working abroad in internships and other kinds of experience, because that really brings riches to their experience. But not simply having them, we want to be the world leader in doing that in the same way we have a recognized reputation in study abroad. We've got to redouble our efforts to, uh, in, to uh, recruit international students. STEM areas are a national priority in terms of American competitiveness. You'll see in the list that we've already had a 25% increase in the last five years of students measuring in natural science in the STEM disciplines. That needs to continue. We need to reduce the barriers so that more students can be a part of that. We've got to also look at ways in which we can balance all this economic development activity with the celebrations of the rest of the university. And part of that is working on a graduate student task force to enhance the undergraduate, the graduate student experience led by Dean Comparins. It's announcing that the next year will be the year of the arts because it gives us a chance to celebrate the opening of the new residential college, the, 21st, the 25th anniversary of Wharton, the anniversary of the Museum of Cultural and Natural History, the Department of Theater, but also to think about the role that arts and humanities must play in the sense of the public good, the soul of this country as we move through these difficult economic times. We also are, be, are concluding a fundraising campaign and very successfully have a lot of work to do to close the endowments. We started last in the Big Ten in the endowments. We moved up to seventh. We need to continue to move up in those rankings because that's important for our overall support. Before the capital campaign, we were raising about $50 million a year. Our highest year so far has been $140 million annually in current and deferred gifts. We're setting a target in the post-campaign era. We've got one more year of the campaign to raise annually $150 million in current and deferred gifts, $150 million. Triple our level th just six years ago. That's important for our future. And we must move our endowment money up. Research grant and contract, we're, we're growing at more than 10%. We're growing rapidly, the numbers have been good, but we haven't been able to move up in the rankings and our position with research. So now we've got to grow over 10% in research. That will require setting pretty definite targets by colleges and programs in terms of external support, including foundations for the arts and humanities. And we have to have measurable outcomes to do this. Provost Wilcox and Vice President Gray will be leading these efforts with the deans and with the faculty to assure that everything is sort of is in sync, that we can have the growing support that we need because it is research and scholarship that will lead the nation. And these funds are also important to bring jobs to Michigan. Vice President Gray will take steps to support the faculty in obtaining more competitive grants. 
This tech transfer issue was a big one nationally. I was just off a phone call with the AAU presidents about technology transfer, and I'm pleased to report to you today that we are partnering with the MSU Foundation to launch a new business uh, arm of the university called MSU Technologies, dedicated to maximizing our intellectual property estate, aggressively identifying opportunities for commercialization, and supporting startup companies for faculty discoveries. The search is underway now for an experienced leader, and we hope to make that an announcement within the next uh, two or three weeks so that we can move that venture forward. We've taken it as a hybrid, a new model for taking the best of what's happening around the country. Environmental stewardship is also important. Within five years, we're committed to be the go-to place for the model for significantly reducing our environmental footprint and becoming the national model for responsibly managing a sustainable, complex university ecosystem. This is not simply an announcement of a recycling center or this or that. This is looking at the ecosystem and having Michigan State University model what we need to do. In international programs, in addition to the activities of study abroad, we want to be the go-to partner internationally. China office is very important in that work in China. We have yet to sort of move to our South American strategy. We have a strong and robust African strategy. We're working on a Mideast strategy. Those have to be pulled together into a global strategy as part of land grant to world grant. And we've got to be prepared to deal with the metrics that go with that, the accountability debate nationally. And we have an opportunity to figure out a way to hold ourselves accountable for delivering our mission. The metrics, again, mark our progress against others, and that's very important. We also need to think about the way the metrics represent our value to society, and that really is the ultimate test. What value do we add to the students' lives? What value do we add to Michigan? What value do we add to the world? Those are the tests we must have. The metrics must support that. And we're going to hone our efforts so that we have not simply metrics about how to be better than the next institution, but how to be that real value for society, because that's the essence of trust, to be a value and to use the resources given to us very, very wisely in terms of our values. All in all, through the process of the last couple of years with Boldness by Design, the one question that kept, keeps coming up is what does it mean to be World Grant? And it's, an, it's a term that we're beginning to define, just like land grant wasn't defined in the beginning. It took a while to define it. And then it took a while to understand that it had contemporary significance in its values. But it means in some ways being able to look at the bigger context and recognize that no problem or issue exists, domestic or global, that doesn't require a multi-dimensional approach. A multi-dimensional approach. It also means that scholarly work mustn't be informed by society's leads. We must be good listeners. It means we must be the trusted go-to resource for local, domestic, and global businesses, governments, nonprofits, and others who seek a thoughtful, power, thoughtful and strategic partner as they tackle the difficult problems that lead to innovation and that lead to prosperity. And we must be able to be a catalyst as well as an implementer, somebody who's prepared to roll up their sleeves, be in an environment day in and day out, and not simply 
move our knowledge out and stand back and watch what happens, but be sure that we're actively engaged in using that knowledge so society is better. And what I know, because I know almost all of you out there, and I know these folks, and the folks that they represent, that we have the capacity to do that. We have the intellectual expertise, we have the passion, we have the desire, but more importantly, I know that if we can put that together, we can turn society's problems into society's dreams. And we can help people of all backgrounds, of all economic strata, have the chance for their dreams to be realized, but as importantly, the chance for their dreams to be bigger. And that really is a tribute and the promise for Team MSU. So thanks to all of you for being such an important part of that team. That's Michigan State University President Luanna Simons' State of the University Address, delivered February 8, 2007, at MSU's Wharton Center. There's more information at president.msu.edu. For more MSU Today, please visit us on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Friday Night Insight here on your Impact 88.9 FM. That was the President Simon's State of the University address. And now we're going to take a look at some local news. This is actually um, coming out of the Lansing State Journal. The rising price of scrap metal has led to a decrease in the number of kegs that are returned to retailers. Currently, the state mandates a $10 return deposit on kegs. However, people can get anywhere between $10 and $30 by selling their kegs to scrap metal dealers. Breweries across the state are losing thousands of dollars in unreturned kegs. Many breweries are pushing the state to increase the return deposit to $30 to compete with the scrap metal dealers. However, a plan to increase the deposit is months down the road. Coming up next, we have the governor's uh, governor's address here on Friday Night Insight. Hello, this is Governor Jennifer Granholm. There's just no question that change is happening across the country every minute. Our global economy is transforming. Businesses are thriving in industries that didn't even exist 10 years ago, and people are learning new skills and taking on new jobs. So to be competitive in this new global marketplace and to ensure that Michigan's people can be successful in it, Michigan has to change too. We have to focus on being innovative and on investing in our people. Innovation and investment, those are two things that I've been talking a lot about recently. In fact, in the few weeks since laying out the next steps in our economic plan in my State of the State address, I've been traveling across Michigan to look at some of the ways we are investing in our people and innovating to diversify our economy and create new jobs. Just this week, I met with students at Calvin College in Grand Rapids. They are building a wind turbine that will power lights and computers on campus. At Macomb Community College, I visited the Turner Advanced Technology Center where they're partnering with local manufacturers to train workers and students in the latest technologies. Harnessing the power of the wind can help us create jobs and become the alternative energy center of the country, while harnessing the power and talent of our people will help us create a workforce that attracts companies from across the globe.
These are just two examples out of many where innovation and investment in people are beginning to come together to help revitalize our economy. And my economic plan, frankly, calls for more investments in education and worker training and in economic diversification. Companies that are growing and innovating across the world won't wait for Michigan to catch up. And they won't invest in a place where workers don't have the skills that the 21st century economy demands. The truth is, we need to invest or we will fall behind. And that means we need to take action on my plan. We need to do it now. This week, I'm traveling to Washington, D.C. for a National Governors Association meeting. Let me tell you, our nation's governors are all talking about innovation, and they are all fighting to make their states competitive in the global marketplace. In Michigan, we want to lead the wave of change and not get left behind. Already, we are starting to lead a new charge of innovation that can again transform our economy. But our success depends on investing more than ever in our people and in giving them the tools and opportunities to compete and succeed in the global economy. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Friday Night Insight. We've got a little bit of campus news coming your way. Um, today, the MSU Board of Trustees approved the School of Music as the 16th MSU College. Uh, the name change from uh, names change, uh, from the School of Music to the College of Music became effective immediately, but academic changes will begin in the fall of 2000. As one of the top music schools in the nation, the new College of Music has a 100% placement rate in the music education after graduation for both undergraduate and doctoral students. Uh, Dean Jim Forger told the State News on Monday, which is where we actually got the story from. Coming up this weekend, the East Lansing Children's Film Festival will be taking place on February 23rd, today, through March 1st. Um, You can check out more information about the East Lansing Children's Film Festival at www.elcff.com. And this is actually going to be the 10th anniversary, so it is kind of a special occasion. And that's actually all the time that we got for you. Eric is kind of looking at me. Um, It's kind of a little bit of a reunion for us because Eric usually does Tuesday night exposure, but he was so gracious enough to, uh, you know, give us his presence here on Friday Night Insight, and we definitely do appreciate it. So um, Eric Elkins, engineering, uh, myself hosting, and I guess that's about all the time that we have. Coming up next on uh, your exposure, we've got flashback here on the Impact 88.9 FM. Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.